Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the 60 Feet 6 Inches LSU Podcast. As always, thank you for joining me. So in this episode, as you guessed it, I'm going to preview the upcoming Super Regional as the Kentucky Wildcats take a trip to Baton Rouge for the second time this year. Two more wins from your Tigers, and they will find themselves back in Omaha roughly this time next week. So in this podcast, I will give you a very brief rundown of how the SEC series went between these two teams earlier in this year, and how did Kentucky end up in the Super Regionals in Baton Rouge this weekend. I'll go over some key stats for each of these two teams very briefly. I will give you the key Kentucky hitters and pitchers that you should be aware of heading into the weekend. And then finally, stay tuned. At the end, I will give you my three keys to the weekend for the Tigers, the get right, stay right list, and I will let you know why LSU will win the Super Regional in two games. So as always, you can find the 60 Feet, 6 Inches LSU podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, all the other major audio platforms. Make sure to check out the YouTube page. Please like, comment, subscribe if you want to. And don't miss out on any of the content throughout the season. On Twitter, as y'all know by now, the account is at 60FT6INLSUPod. Hit that notifications bell and make sure to follow me and interact with me on Twitter as well. So if you missed the last episode, I reviewed LSU's three wins in the regional this past weekend. And as always, that's up on YouTube and in podcast form as well. Now, look, if you're looking for some more Kentucky content, and I actually did this myself to help prepare me for this podcast, when they played earlier this year, I put out a review. So LSU versus Kentucky SEC Series Review, that's on the YouTube page. It's still out there in podcast form as well. So if you want to kind of get an idea of how those teams fared uh, facing up earlier this year in Baton Rouge, I would encourage you to go check out that content just like I did. So I'm prepped and ready to go for the weekend at the box. All right, let's get into it. First up, a quick review of how Kentucky won their regional, and then some key stats. So in Kentucky's regional, they started off uh, by beating Ball State, who was the four seed. Then they lost to Indiana, who was the number three seed. They came through the loser's bracket by beating West Virginia 10 to nothing. Then they destroyed Indiana 16 to six. And then finally, they beat Indiana again 4 to two on Monday to advance to the Super Regionals. Kentucky comes into the Supers with a record of 39 and 19. And I'm not sure if y'all remember, but they had a very, very high RPI, I think, in the top three. And also their strength of schedule was very high as well. Now, looking at some key stats, this is just a really brief overview of uh, stats for LSU and Kentucky. I'm not going to get into the weeds like I typically do for SEC series, but just just to give you an idea of where both teams stand heading into the weekend. So hitting-wise, Kentucky is hitting 294 as a team with 51 home runs. They have 111 doubles, and they do have 90 stolen bases on the year, so very similar to Oregon State. And as most of y'all probably know, Kentucky does like to run, but it seems like they've kind of ratcheted it down uh, pre, uh, the past couple of weekends. By comparison, LSU is hitting 314 as a team. They have 126 home runs on the year, and LSU has eight players with double digits home runs. I think the last team to have nine players with double digits home runs was 1998. Little pat on the back. I didn't contribute to that, but I was on the team. So my guys, uh, the old gorilla ball and those minus fives helped us out a lot. LSU does have 109 doubles, so 111 for Kentucky may seem like a lot, but LSU is right on their heels, and both teams have similar on-base percentages. So, look, Kentucky doesn't hit a ton of bombs, but when they come here, they definitely can run some balls at the park. Look, their park is just different, right? It's bigger. Uh, it's AstroTurf. So they go for more speed on the base pass. They hit more doubles. They do things like bunting, and that's just – they play to how their ballpark's configured. 
much like Jay Johnson has configured this team to the confines of Alec Box Stadium. In terms of fielding, this is where Kentucky really shines. They are fielding at a 984 clip, and LSU is fielding it at a 975 clip. When you go to pitching, Kentucky does have a very good staff as well, although not very overpowering. Their team ERA is a 4.21, and they have a batting average against of 232. By comparison, LSU has a team ERA of 5. Excuse me, 4.54, and their batting average against is 227, so a couple points lower than the Wildcats. LSU's pitching staff has over 160 more strikeouts than does the Kentucky pitching staff. And LSU's pitching staff only has eight more walks than Kentucky's staff. So one thing that I've noticed, they have a couple guys that are running up there in the mid-90s, not a ton. But one thing they do really, really well is that they pitch, meaning that they work inside and outside to both sides of the plate. It doesn't matter if you're right-handed or left-handed batter. And they're able to change eye level to where they walk their ball up and they work their breaking balls down. And they really don't walk a ton. They may not strike out a ton of people, but they don't walk a lot of people either. Okay, let's get into a very quick recap of the previous series between LSU and Kentucky, and I mean very brief, okay? So just to give you an idea of how these uh, two teams fared off early in the season, if you can't remember, just like me, I had to go back and listen to the podcast and watch highlights on YouTube just to try to figure out how these two teams squared off earlier in the year. So LSU took games one and three of that series with Kentucky winning the middle game. So in game one, LSU wins by a score of 16 to six. So they 10 run rule Kentucky after eight innings. And this one got out of hand early and, and Kentucky basically conceded this game. The head coach, Nick Mangione started some guy who hadn't started in a year and a half and LSU made short work of him. I'm not even sure if he's pitched since that game, but LSU was up 14 to one after three innings as they put it on Kentucky. Thompson hits a grand slam in the first. Joe Bear hits a grand slam in the second, and then Kay Beloso hits a three-run home run as they score six, five, and three runs in the first three innings. Paul Skeens threw that game. He threw well. He didn't throw great, okay? Uh, when you're up 14-1, to it's easy to let your guard down, and I probably think he did that just a little bit, but also his fastball location was not on point for this game. It was up in the zone. Kentucky hit him a little bit, but one thing you saw Skeens do is he went to primarily breaking balls after he got hit a little bit, and he absolutely dominated Kentucky with his breaking balls. So in the night, Skeens goes six innings pitched, seven hits, five runs, four earned, one walk, and 13 Ks. And I bet 12 out of the 13 Ks were probably on breaking balls. So it'll be very interesting to see how Paul Skeens approaches this matchup a second time around. In game two, LSU dropped this game by a score of 13 to 10. You saw Ty Floyd take the mound. And this was the Ty Floyd in the past, right, where he was still working through some control issues, uh, still missing with his fastball, having issues with walks and hits batters. So it was kind of a, a typical, unfortunately, uh, early season Ty Floyd outing. On the day, Ty went four and two-thirds innings pitched, six hits, five runs, three earned, three walks, and two Ks. And you've really seen him flip that numbers, right, where his Ks are up and his walks are way down. LSU did take the lead early on in this game, but you really saw the defense from the Tigers let them down in this game. And then I don't know if y'all remember, but this is the game when Braden Joe Bear overran that fly ball in right field. It was bases loaded at the time, and that miscue allowed three Kentucky base runners to score and really helped them pull away and kind of seal the victory in that game. 
LSU also gave up five runs in the fifth and five in the seventh, that error being a key part of that right there. You saw Griffin Herring come on in relief from Ty Floyd, and he didn't have a great outing either. It was kind of a bumpy one for the freshman as he only lasted an inning and two-thirds, and then Blake Money came on in relief of Herring. LSU did try to make a comeback at the end, but it just wasn't enough as Kentucky wins that game 13-10. to 10. Moving on to game three and how that game shook out, LSU wins this game in come-from-behind fashion. They win the rubber match 7-6. to six. And just to show you how much things have changed for the Tigers, you saw Christian Little get the start in this game, and he was fabulous for the first three innings. He went nine up and nine down, but in the fourth inning, he just couldn't find it. I think he threw 12 balls in a row at one point. He walked three hitters in a row, just kind of fell apart on him. Gavin Guidry came in, and he had a bumpy outing as well. But this was the uh, Jared Jones show. As Jared Jones was in the lineup, he was mashing home runs. He hits two a monster blast on the day. And I'm not sure if y'all remember when he hits his second home run of the day. That's when he talked all that crap to the Kentucky pitcher. Uh, ESPN and the broadcast caught every word he said. There's definitely clips of it if you don't remember out there on the internet. But um, Jared Jones got hype on that one. He let the Kentucky pitcher how he knew. So. LSU scores two in the seventh and one in the eighth to come behind and get from the win. They actually hit Tommy Tanks with the bases loaded, and that's how the winning run came in. And I'm not sure if y'all remember this either, but after that game, the two teams didn't even shake hands. So obviously some bad blood. It seemed like there was a lot of crap talking throughout the series. So it's going to be very interesting to see how these two teams approach each other and if some of that animosity still remains. And I can tell you from my time playing, I guarantee you these dudes still do not like each other at all. In the series, Kentucky only hit one home run in the previous SEC series when they visited Baton Rouge earlier in this year. Like I said, they're definitely capable of hitting more, and they only had six stolen bases. You say only. They had two stolen bases a game, um, but they're known for running. So hopefully LSU can keep that in check this go-around. One thing that did help them out, I mentioned their fielding percentage earlier, Kentucky turned seven double plays in the three-game series versus LSU. I just don't see that happening again. Just think about that you know, runners on first and second, you know, to where a base hit can score a run and they turn a double play and ends the inning or just clears the bases, whatever the case may be. It's a true momentum killer. And for them to turn seven, that was massive for them. I just don't see that happening again. All right, moving on here on the 60 feet, six inches LSU pod. Let me go over some key Kentucky hitters. And they're really the same guys I went over uh, when I did the preview podcast earlier in the year. But the first guy you're going to face is Jackson Gray. He's a left-handed hitter. He's their center fielder who made some really nice catches earlier in the year. He's hitting um, – on the year, he's hitting 348, which leads the team. He also has 19 stolen bases, and he does have 55 Ks, which is second on the team. So he does have some swing and miss for a leadoff hitter. But if you look back at that earlier series, Jackson Gray hit 417 against LSU, and he did have four strikeouts. So somebody you want to definitely keep off the bases. The other guy who really kind of killed LSU in the series is he went off, and he is Emil Petrie. He is their second baseman. He hit the ball extremely well. He went 7 for 12 in the previous three-game set, which is good for a 583 batting average. And he went 4 for 4 on the night that Skeens and Cooper pitched in that Thursday night matchup. On the season, Petrie is hitting 327 with 50 RBIs and 18 stolen bases. The power guy in this lineup is Hunter Gilliam. He is their first baseman. In the previous series, he hit 272 on the weekend, but on the season, he is hitting 324, and he leads the team with 12 home runs, and he also leads the team with 69 RBIs. Also, another power guy to watch out for, that is the catcher, 
Devin Burks, and he was just now out, just named the most outstanding player in the Lexington Regional this past weekend. But he struggled a lot the last time he faced LSU, as he only went three for 13, which is good for a three, excuse me, a 230 batting average. And he's going to hit anywhere in that four to five range for the Wildcats. On the year, Burks does lead Kentucky in doubles with 17, and he is hitting 292 with 52 RBIs and 51 Ks. He will also run a little bit as a catcher. I think he has eight stolen bases on the year, so don't sleep on him as he is very athletic behind the plate. And then finally rounding out Kentucky's key hitters is third baseman Jace Felker. He does a good job at third base. He has a pretty good glove. He's not really a power guy, but he can really run. Last time versus LSU, he went three for 11 in the series, which is good for a 272 batting average. And on the year, Felker leads the team with 20 stolen bases, and he's hitting right around that 305, 306 range. So the important guys to me is definitely Pete, excuse me, Jackson Gray at the top of the order, then Petrie and Gilliam, because they looked really comfortable last time they came here, and Petrie went off against Skeens and Cooper. And then finally, Devin Burks, I'm sure, is coming in to Alec Box with a ton of confidence being the most down to, most outstanding player in their own regional, but he did struggle when he came to Baton Rouge last time. Now, all right, now in terms of their pitchers, I'm going to be honest, I don't have a freaking clue who these guys are going to throw, okay? They throw three to four guys almost every game unless somebody is dealing, then they'll leave them in. But once that guy starts to falter, Mangione just runs another arm out there, and all these guys throw very similar, right? They have a ton of righties. They can all go anywhere from you know, mainly two to five innings. They can extend if needed. And um, it's just flip a coin at this point because he can start one of five guys. And then if they don't start, they could come in in relief and go four innings. So I'm going to give you some names, but I don't know who the hell these guys are going to start in this uh, hopefully only two-game set this weekend in Baton Rouge. Okay. Travis Smith, he's probably a good candidate to start. 13 games started, 13 appearances this year for Kentucky. Smith has a 4.84 ERA. He has thrown 48 innings this year with only 43 Ks and 26 walks. So he's not a big strikeout guy. He will definitely walk you. But every outing he's had this year has been a start. So I'd imagine he'll start one of the games this weekend if I had to guess. Zach Lee is another guy that can start for the Wildcats. 14 games started and 15 appearances for Lee. He has a 3.74 ERA on the year. 67 innings pitch and 73 Ks. So he's one of their main strikeout guys as well. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Zach Lee get a start either for the Wildcats. And then finally you have Logan Martin. Eight games started and nine appearances this year for Kentucky. He has a 4.44 ERA. 26 innings pitched, 30 Ks with a 211 batting average again. So if he does start, I wouldn't imagine Mr. Martin going more than three innings pitched. Now, the guy that went off for Kentucky this weekend, really in relief, and he was fabulous for them. He pitched earlier this year against LSU. He only gave up one hit, but he had some control issues, and he didn't last very long versus the Tigers earlier in this year. Um, and he can really extend coming out of the pen, and that is Mason Moore. He was phenomenal in the regional. Game one against Ball State, he came in and goes five innings pitched, zero hits, and two Ks. I get it, it's Ball State. But it doesn't matter. He actually slammed the door for those guys. And then he came in relief in the deciding game versus Indiana on Monday. And in that game, he goes five innings pitched, four hits, one walk, five Ks. 
So obviously he's somebody that could throw multiple times in the weekend. It just depends on where Mangione and that staff see his value. I would imagine they would keep him in the pen to where he could possibly be first in relief on Saturday if the game is close. And then if needed, he could come back on Sunday and even Monday if there happens to be a game three. But remember the name Mason Moore. He's a righty. His fastball sits 93 to 96 with a good breaking ball. One of the harder throwers on this Kentucky staff. And he is coming off a heater this past weekend in Lexington. A couple of other guys to look out for that have thrown this year against LSU is Austin Strickland. 19 appearances. He's got a 4.44 ERA as well. So in 19 appearances, he's got 52 innings pitched. So he can extend as well. 42 hits and 57 K. So more than uh, right around one strikeout per inning pitch for Mr. Strickland. Also, he was their bullpen ace coming into the year, and I'm sure he still is kind of the guy at the end of the game that they like, but Ryan Hagenow, when he came in to face LSU early in the year, he hadn't given up a run in SEC play. He didn't last very long as LSU hurt his feelings, so he had a quick hook in that game, and um, he stumbled a little bit since that uh, outing in Baton Rouge. Hagenow on the year 20 appearances, only 25 innings pitched, so if he comes in, it's going to be very short for a specific hitter or two. Maybe to face like a cruiser, Whitey kind of has a three-quarter arm slot, or maybe just to throw the ninth in the game if they are tied or have the lead. So when you see Hagenow come in, it's a very short stint. 20 appearances, 25 innings pitched, 34 Ks, and only nine walks on the year for Hagenow. The last guy I'm going to mention is Darren Williams. He can start, but he's mainly been used as a reliever. He's a tall guy, uh, right-handed pitcher, 15 appearances, five games started. A four ERA, 58 innings pitch with 57 Ks. He threw twice in the Lexington Regional. He really doesn't have great stuff, okay? He just really pitches, right? He's going to bust the righties in, so he's going to bust Tommy White in. He's going to bust Dylan Cruz in. He throws like 88 to 90, okay? He'll elevate his fastball, and he's got a decent breaking ball, but he's just more of a pitcher and just to try to eat up outs and eat up innings. And the funny thing, the interesting fact about Darren Williams The dude has been in college for seven years. Yes, that's correct. No, he doesn't have a doctor behind his name. He's not an MD. Seven years. My guy got a COVID year and two redshirt years. He's a transfer. I think he went to Northern Kentucky. But, bro, man, this guy loves college baseball. He's going to exhaust every avenue of that eligibility, and hopefully his season season ends this year in Baton Rouge. In terms of lefties, they got a couple of them. Uh, Cotto throws pretty hard. Um, He's kind of wild, but he can run it up there in the mid to upper 90s. He faced LSU this year. The biggest thing with him is walks, right? If LSU can just wait him out, he's going to end up walking a couple of people and then get pulled. But it's mainly righties that will face LSU this weekend, and it's going to be a lot of them, and they're all going to look similar, okay? Probably three to four a game, maybe even more, depending on the situation. That's just how Kentucky runs their staff. Okay, moving on. What are my three keys to the weekend for the Tigers. The first key, Paul Skeens and Ty Floyd. They're going to set the tone for the game, especially in a game like this. You win two, you go to Omaha. You lose two, your season's over. I'm looking for both of those guys to get off to good, clean starts to allow the hitters to relax and get settled into the game. As we have discussed, Skeens did get hit around a little bit last time versus Kentucky. So as I mentioned, I'm very interested to see his approach since they were on his fastball last time, but his breaking ball was super effective. You know, does he throw a bunch of breaking balls early then look to finish those guys off with fastballs and maybe even bust some of those lefties in? Or does he stick with kind of what he typically does is fastballs early in the count, then he looks to put hitters away with breaking balls for the strikeout? I'm going to be paying attention 
to that a lot. In terms of Floyd, depending on how the outcome of game one is, his role only increases and the importance of his appearance is massive, okay? I don't think he's going to have a uh, – in terms of his last outing, which got cut short by Rain versus Oregon State, I don't think it was a bad outing. I just thought he had trouble finishing hitters off, right? He, I thought he tried to get too fine with his fastball. He tried to get too precise, and you saw a lot of 0-2, 1-2 counts run to 3-2, and that really drove his pitch count up as he was around 70 pitches in three innings pitched. I look for him to get ahead early. Hopefully he has a very clean first time through the order. So when you see Floyd get off to a good start and the first three innings, he has a bunch of zeros up there, okay, um, that's usually when he's at his best. If he's able to flip that breaking ball in for a strike early in the count against these Kentucky hitters, then I have a feeling it's going to be a very, very good day. And what we've seen from him in the past, he can go 118, 120 pitches, okay? But he usually gets better as the game goes on. That's why it's really important for him to get off to a very clean start. The second key to the weekend for the Tigers is their defense. Actually, when I looked at my notes from the uh, previous podcast against Kentucky earlier in the year, I had defense down here as well, and I think it's going to be defense down again. I'm going to imagine that Travinsky is going to catch every game, and you'll see him subbed out for Malazzo late in the game. Also, I'm sure the polls will come in for Dugas. You may see Kling come in for Joe Bear in right field. But the way Travinsky is swinging the bat right now, you just can't put him in the DH spot because if you put him in the DH spot, then you're probably going to lose Beloso or you're going to lose Pearson. And both those guys are on fire right now, and I'm not taking either one of those guys out of the lineup. Travinsky has looked good throwing some runners out recently, but in terms of blocking balls, he's not as good as Malazzo. And then just in terms of receiving baseballs, you know, I've seen him clank fastballs or balls that uh, he loses concentration on, you know, just regular pitches, not balls in the dirt. They get past him. And, you know, think about this situation, right? If it's first and second and a ball gets by him, now it's second and third. So a single doesn't score one run, it scores two runs. And when you're looking at games that are this high leverage, this magnitude, that could be the difference between a win and a loss. And I really don't think I'm over-exaggerating that point. I saw that against Oregon State when I was at the game. He missed a fastball from Cooper, totally clanked off his mitt. Runners go up to second and third, but luckily Cooper was able to get the next hitter out, so there was no damage done. But that's something I'm going to be watching out for. He's just got to bear down a little bit more defensively. Also, the other thing you got to worry about with regards to Kentucky is bunting. They'll bunt with two strikes. They're not afraid to lay one down. We saw Oregon State lay down a couple of bunts, so I'm sure LSU is going to test um, Tommy White. That's why I think it's important to have Trey Morgan at first. And I'm sure if Jay Johnson, those guys have gone over it a ton, and they're going over it. You know, this week, they're going to know their coverages. They're going to know who has the bag. So hopefully there's no brain farts out there, and they can just pick it up and get it out somewhere, and that Kentucky doesn't small ball them to death. All right, the last key to the weekend for me will be the bullpen, specifically the lefties, right? You saw that against Oregon State. You saw Cooper, Ackenhausen, Herring, right? And you could throw Javen Coleman into that mix as well. They have some key left-handed hitters, and I think that's where you're going to see their roles, just kind of a more traditional bullpen role. They got Petrie, they have Jackson Gray, and then they have Felker. Those are the three lefties that they have. They may have somebody else on the bench that I'm forgetting about. But I think those guys are going to come in to try to get two or three hitters or to shut down an inning, and that's going to be their role this weekend. Obviously, they have an effect on the running game since they're looking right at the runner, and they're all pretty quick to the plate. So I'd imagine um, they're going to do a fair amount of picking off this weekend. but the bullpen, besides the lefties, you also have Gidry, 
those are the four to five arms that you need to get past this Super Regional. And I would imagine Gidry will look to shut a game down as well. You can even throw Hurt into that mix because he's very flexible. Start, middle relief, close, whatever you need him to do. But I think the lefties are really going to play a key role this weekend versus Kentucky. All right, we've made it to the get right, stay right list as we start to wrap it up here on the 60 feet, 6 inches Super Regional Preview Podcast. On the get right, I have Gavin Dugas. He's really been struggling since the injury. And uh, I guess the irony is he got hurt against Kentucky when they played earlier this year. It was really nice and encouraging to see him hit a home run versus Oregon State in that deciding game on Monday. And I thought he had really struggled with the strikeouts, but then I looked how many times he had struck out before his injury and then how many times he had struck out after his injury. So before his injury, 100 at-bats, 28 Ks. After his injury, 92 at-bats, 32 Ks. And he's actually second on the team in strikeouts behind Jared Jones, which really surprised me. But he's kind of striking out at the same clip. And I've been kind of harping on that or talking to friends about that. So maybe it's just not the injury. Maybe my uh, perspective is skewed a little bit and I'm blaming it on the injury. But you really need Gavin Dugas to get hot. He struggled in the regional. Um, on the year, he's hitting 286 with 14 home runs and 58 Ks. But, you know, Jay's kind of moved him into that six hole, and he's a great bridge. You just really want to see him try to have a bust-out weekend. Maybe he goes, um, you know, four for eight or five for 12 if they have three games and just provide some of that senior leadership in what will be his last series at the box this weekend. Gavin Dugas, get right, baby. Also on the get right list is Trey Morgan. And I feel like since the Georgia series, he's been a, a, a victim of hard-hit balls right at people, but it's kind of continued. It's really lingered on to where a lot of those balls aren't dropping. So in the year, Trey is hitting 303, and he still has more walks than strikeouts, and he's got a 400-plus on base percentage, so he's still getting on base. But he's super important, as lately it's been Cruz White, Morgan Travinsky. So he plays a key role in protecting Tommy White and then setting up Hayden Travinsky right there in the middle of that order. So I just like to see, you know, Trey does a great job of driving the ball to left field through the six hole or into left center field gap. And uh, I just want to see some of those balls drop that he's barreling up. So Trey Morgan, you get right this weekend. And then finally, Tommy Tanks is on the get right list. And it just seems like he's been pressing a little bit. He's really expanded the strike zone to where he's swinging at fastballs, like in his eyes or even above his head. And it just seems like when runners are on base, he's pressing more um, than he used to. And I think one of the more encouraging signs I saw from this weekend is that in the deciding game against Oregon State, you finally saw him hit the ball to right field. And that's where I think he is at his best. His first A-B of the game, he pissed on a ball to the right field fence. Then you saw him drive a, a ground ball through the four hole. And it's important because a lot of teams will shift to where they put three infielders on the left side. And then that second base area is completely wide open. And he has the ability, as we know, to drive the ball out to right center. That's where he's most comfortable. So it's just been encouraging. And hopefully that continues to where you see him drive the ball to right field. He can still pull the ball. But when he lets the ball get deep, I think that's when he's at his best. Now, Tanks is still hitting 378 with 20 home runs on the year. And he does have 93 RBIs. But he feels like he's been stuck in that low 90s since uh, the SEC tournament. I think in the SEC tournament, he had 91 RBIs. So for him to only have a – it feels like the SEC tournament was forever ago. Maybe the Georgia series. But he just hasn't driven in a lot of runs as of late. So Tommy Tanks, you get white – excuse me. You don't – your name is white. 
but you get right this weekend, brother, okay? So getting a little tongue-tied there. All right, moving on. This stay right list. Dylan Cruz, my man was the – man, he's really – I think he's back in it right now. I think he's seeing the ball really, really well. Named the regional's most outstanding player. And, uh, you know, he went nuts this past weekend. Driving the ball to all fields, it's nice to see him drive the ball out the yard again. On the year, Cruz is hitting 432 with 17 home runs, 63 RBIs, and oh, by the way, 61 walks on the year. I would love to see him get to 20 home runs, and I hope LSU fans, we've talked about it on the pod, I'm sure you all know it, but this will be the last time you see Dylan Cruz in an LSU uniform in Baton Rouge at Alec Box Stadium. So I'm going to be there Saturday. I plan on being there Sunday, and I think uh, Cruz goes nuts this weekend, right? What better way for one of the best players in LSU history to go out in style than to, uh, you know, hit a couple more home runs and maybe uh, even uh, maintain that batting average lead over Ray Frimes and solidify himself as the highest batting average in LSU history. Cruz, you stay right, brother. The other guy on the stay right list is Hayden Travinsky. I don't know if there's much more to say about that guy. He's been absolutely crushing balls. He's already up to double-digit home runs. The dude has 82 at-bats and 10 home runs, which is absolutely disgusting. He's hitting 427, 17 strikeouts, 14 walks. So he's not punching out a ton, and he's more than willing to take walks. He is absolutely locked in, and uh, you've seen him move up to the middle of the order, providing some of that RBI punch that the Tigers desperately need. And I just think Travinsky's going to stay hot. I, I don't see him slowing down anytime soon. And what better way to get on a heater than at the end of the year? So Travinsky, you stay hot, brother. And last one. Thatcher Hurd. Thatcher Hurd, got to have you stay right. Now, in this series, I could see him coming in relief to close out a game. My theory is if you need a win and you don't want to burn Gidry twice, you can bring in Hurd in relief, and he can even throw two days in relief if needed. Or if for some reason you go to a game three, if he throws Friday night in relief for a short stint, you can see him start a game three, uh, say Friday night. Saturday afternoon, you can see him start a game three on Monday if needed. But I've talked a lot about him the past couple weeks, but to me, I'll just keep it short. He's just got a ton of confidence. Just look at his body languages on the mound. He doesn't get flustered if he gives up a hit. He doesn't get flustered when he falls behind in the count. He continues to pound the zone with his mid-90s fastball and his very, very tight, very good slider. So that's your herd. Whatever role you played this weekend, let's stay right and bring this one home for the Tigers. All right. Bury the lead long enough. We're going to wrap up here with a prediction on the 60 feet, 6 inches podcast for the Super Regional LSU versus Kentucky. I'm not overlooking Kentucky at all, and y'all shouldn't be either. I've seen people on Twitter say, well, LSU played bad. They shouldn't have lost that game. But maybe just Kentucky played good. They're here for a reason, right? They're top uh, you know, 16 national seed coming in at number 12, so they deserve to be here. They're a good team with very talented players. But they're also built for the ballpark that they play in. It does travel a little bit. They're going to have a little more pop when they come to LSU, okay? But you did see them make some errors last time, and playing on turf in terms of fielding obviously is much easier than playing on grass and dirt. They're very athletic. They can bunt and run. I just don't think they're going to run as much as a lot of people assume they will, okay? Now, I do think they will bunt to try to put some pressure and create some chaos. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see those guys do that. But I don't think they're going to turn seven, seven double plays again either. I think that was just uh, a little bit lucky on their part as well. The one thing that does concern me, though, is they've been in this atmosphere. They've been to the box. 
They've seen Skeens. They've seen Floyd. They've seen some of the other LSU pitchers, but they aren't nearly as good as they are now, right? Ackenhausen was hurt. Hurd hadn't figured it out yet. Floyd was still struggling. <clears throat> Herring and Gidry had off outings, and all those guys are in a much better place now, specifically Hurd and Floyd, okay? They're not going to be intimidated by the atmosphere, but this is a situation they are not used to at all. And that being said, LSU's players aren't super used to this situation either, okay? So the pressure uh, has ratcheted up for them as well. But to me, new players, same program, same expectations. And I just think the box is going to come alive this weekend. I think it's going to be a crazy atmosphere. And I can't wait to see, you know, just uh, people heckling Kentucky, right? Getting on those guys as they're warming up in the pen. You know, keep it above board, but you can be creative, okay? I want to see the fans just going nuts. You got to remember, Skeens is done after this weekend. Cruz is done after this weekend. Morgan. Joe Bear, Thompson, Beloso, Dugas, and maybe some pitchers that may get drafted that are done. This is the last time you're going to see these guys in an LSU uniform. And it's a shame because, you know, we only had Skeens for one year. But those other guys have had a hell of a career, okay? So I think they're going to take full advantage of hosting the Super Regionals. They know full well what's at stake, a chance to get to Omaha, something they've been working for since they got onto campus, okay? And I just – I just think LSU has too much firepower. You saw that the first time these two teams played. They have too much talent. Kentucky has some very talented hitters. I don't think they have a ton of power arms to where if they make mistakes, those balls are definitely going to get hit, and they can get hit a long way. I do think one of these games is going to be close, a la Oregon State, where LSU has to win 6-5, to five, or like that 7-6 to six win in Game 3 versus Kentucky earlier in this year. So the Tigers may have to come back and win one, but in the end, I'm going to bet with my Tigers. I'm pushing all those chips in. We're going to send Dylan Cruz off and Skeens and others, as I mentioned. We're going to send those suckers off in style. And LSU is going to sweep Kentucky and return to their rightful place back in Omaha, where they could even face Tennessee or, lo and behold, a chance to get some major payback from those dudes in Hattiesburg and face potentially Southern Miss in an opening round game. Look. I would much rather face Southern Miss. They're not nearly as talented as Tennessee, okay? They don't have the arms that Tennessee does, and Tennessee has already seen them just like Kentucky has seen LSU as well. But I would love to get some payback against Southern Miss in a no better place to do that then than in Omaha. But you got to get through this weekend. I think the crowd's going to be rowdy. The atmosphere at the box is going to be electric. But the Tigers, they are going to sweep the Wildcats. You heard it here on the 60 Feet 6 Inches LSU podcast. And that's going to do it for this week's preview of the Super Regional here in Baton Rouge as the Wildcats come to town. Thank you all for tuning in. As a reminder, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow me and hit me up on Twitter. The podcast is on all major audio platforms, Google, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. Next up, be on the lookout for the Super Regional Review podcast. So I'm sure the details will follow on Twitter, and uh, maybe we can even get a live stream going for kind of a rapid reaction, instant analysis after LSU sweeps Kentucky on Sunday. So as always, thank you all for tuning in. Stay safe and go Tigers.